wanted to discuss an issue, as I said, that's of great and growing importance. We all experience it in British Columbia. Wildfires, their causes, consequences, and coexistence. We need a tremendous amount of research. We need to develop plans across this province and across the western uh, side of North America and many parts of the world to really deal with uh, this threat to biodiversity. Not only the, the forests and the trees that burn, but the impact it has on the, on, on the ecosystem. And in British Columbia, as you know, our forest industry, and many of you are graduates of forestry or land and food systems, know how important this issue is. Discussing this topic will be Professor Lori Daniels from the UBC Faculty of Forestry, one of the top 10 or so forestry programs in the world. We're incredibly proud of it. Lori Daniels is a professor of forest ecology in the Forest and Conservation Sciences Department, where she directs the Tree Ring Lab at UBC. And a number of uh, alumni have actually come up to me to talk about what you learn from tree, tree, tree rings. And there's an enormous amount of work going on, not only in your group, but also around the university, thinking about how to not only uh, adapt to forest fires that are, that are uh, threatening our forests on a regular basis, but also um, how to uh, plant uh, um, seedlings um, and, and how to uh, deal with uh, the need for, for trees uh, and other plants, other parts of the uh, ecosystem to adapt to the changes of climate change. So UBC is a powerhouse, and Lori Daniels is uh, one example of, of, of this expertise that we have uh, on our university campus. Her research applies uh, tree ring analyses to investigate disturbance regimes and the impact of climate and humans on forest dynamics. She also serves on BC's Forest Carbon Initiative Science and Research and, and Advisory Committee and is a member of the Canadian Wildlife Strategy Implementation Team. Ladies and gentlemen, please give Professor Lori Daniels a warm welcome. Thank you. It's my honor to be here this evening. And I want to point out with all this discussion about students, as, as President Ono was speaking just now, I was counting the number of students who have contributed to the projects that I want to share with you tonight. And there will be seven graduate students, either PhD or master's students, whose research underlie the presentation this evening. And last summer, following those 2017 fires that had such devastating effects in many parts of BC, I hired no less than 15 undergraduates who spent four months working in the forests measuring the impacts of those fires and determining the rates of recovery and giving us the baseline from which we will be monitoring the types of changes in the coming years. And so it's the first steps towards a long-term program that will involve many more UBC students in the years to come. When you see this image, what does it make you think? For many people, they will see 
a natural disaster, a wildfire burning on the edge of a community. You're here in downtown Nelson watching a lightning-ignited fire burning into the mountains in a July summer night. For many people, it will instill fear, concern about the lives and the homes and the community at risk from that fire, and our immediate reaction will be to respond by detecting and suppressing that fire before its negative consequences are reaped upon the community. But I also want to share with you my perspective as a forest ecologist, because I see in this image as well a natural disturbance agent, a driver of our ecosystems, an evolutionary force that is essential for the biodiversity that we value, a force that drives our ecosystems, provides diversity, and creates the ecosystem services and values that we need from our landscapes. In other words, fire is an essential part of British Columbia's landscape. And so there is the conundrum. Fire is a natural disturbance agent that we need, but it also is one that can have such negative consequences on our, on our homes and our lives. And we've seen it as well in our concern and our control of fire to reduce its impacts on our, on our lives and our, and our communities. We've expanded that to also be fire suppression, the protection of our forests and other vegetation in order to protect our livelihoods. As we know in British Columbia, much of our economy is based on our forests and the rural economy of British Columbia has been founded on forestry going back to the post-Second World War era. And so that detection and suppression of fires is a really important component of how we've chosen to, to manage our forests for many decades. We've developed world-class wildland firefighters. And in fact, they are so effective at their jobs that over the past 40 years, the BC Wildfire Service will tell us that they have successfully detected and suppressed 92% of ignitions within 24 hours of them igniting or before those fires reach more than four hectares in size. Now, if we flip that around, it means that in my lifetime, we have only seen the 8% of the most extreme fires that escaped our suppression capability affecting our forests. And so that's really skewed our understanding of how forest fires work and their importance in the ecosystem. I want to let you know that fires come not just in the most intense and damaging forms that we've seen so often in the news recently, but also that they come in a range of sizes and diversities and severities and impacts. And it's that full diversity of forest fires that play such an important role in defining the ecosystems and the diversity of our ecosystems in BC. Now our successes, our ability to put out those fires have actually had some unintended negative consequences. One of the factors or one of the impacts that we have had is to be able to suppress the lower intensity fires, the surface fires that used to burn in the dry forests in BC through the grasslands and woodlands and our mixed conifer forests. And they burned as surface fires, burning the grasses and the shrubs and the small trees maintaining the forests, reducing the amount of dead material building up on the ground. And so those surface fires played a role in driving the ecosystem and maintaining its resistance and resilience to wildfire. 
The tree rings that you can see depicted in this screen are from a ponderosa pine tree, a thick bark tree that resists the heat of the fire, but when some fires burn around its base, it damages the tree, and so the tree rings form these anomalies, these arcs, and if you count them, that ponderosa pine has survived 11 fires over its lifetime. It's those low severity surface fires that we have so effectively eliminated from our forests. And the impacts are not just seen at the tree level, but they begin to multiply across the landscape. Here you've got a bird's eye view, an aerial photograph looking down into the grasslands in light gray and the woodlands in darker gray near Kimberley, BC in southeastern British Columbia. We've excluded those surface fires and in the time intervening, trees encroach into those grasslands and the forests become increasingly dense, building up vegetation and burnable fuels. And so we see these landscapes changing in many places around British Columbia. Our beautiful forested British Columbia is in part an artifact of the choices that we've made in trying to protect our communities from fire. And in doing so, however, we've increased the amount of vegetation that's burnable and reduced the resilience of those ecosystems. So when we add in now the impacts of climate change, and we've seen in recent years longer growing seasons, earlier springs, more pronounced and severe droughts in the, in the heat of the summer, and in fact in 2017 alone, we broke 85 maximum temperature records throughout the province of British Columbia. And with that, we found that severe fire weather and ultimately the fires of 2017. And so we see the combination of our choices on how to protect ourselves from fire, leading to changes in the landscape that combined with climate change, are leading to severe fires like the 192,000 hectares that burned at Elephant Hill. And this map, you can see the reds and the oranges. That's where the impacts of the fire were severe from intense fire burning through many of those dry forests that would have previously scarred trees as opposed to killing them. And so this is called the fire suppression paradox. It's a model that applies to our dry forests where our good intention to protect the forest from fire has backfired and the impact ultimately is that our forests are less resilient and less resistant to the types of fires and climate that we're experiencing today. Now, if we move further north into our subboreal and our subalpine forests, fire suppression has also had impacts there to make our landscapes more homogeneous. And one of the consequences of that homogeneity was that it became our forest landscapes became highly susceptible at all the same time to forest health agents, such as the mountain pine beetle, a bark beetle that colonizes the pine trees. And its impacts in British Columbia have been widespread. 18.3 million hectares of forests in British Columbia and Alberta have been affected. Now, not all trees were killed. The pine trees suffered, but other trees survived, and yet the impacts on our forests are extensive and have both social and ecological impacts. Our response, our management response, and its interaction with fire are also contributing to the major fires that we've seen in recent years. So the dead trees accumulated in the forest from mountain pine beetle, and also our management response to salvage some of those trees but leave behind abundant woody debris 
in many of the places where that salvage occurred is contributing to the fires and helping them to conduct across the landscape and exhibiting fire behavior that our managers say exceeds anything in the long careers of the most senior wildland firefighters in British Columbia. And we've seen that in consequences such as or, or Punsi Lake here in 2015 when the fire burned through the community with tremendous, um, tremendous cost. We're lucky in British Columbia that amongst these severe fires, we have not had loss of life with the exception of a couple of firefighters and volunteers who have contributed to the fighting effort. But I'm grateful to say that no citizens have lost their lives to date. But I think looking at the images and the news from California, that we have to also be concerned about what the next phases of climate change and the changes in our ecosystem might bring upon our citizens in British Columbia. Now, I don't want to leave you with the idea that we don't have to worry because we live in a coastal temperate rainforest out here in Victoria or Vancouver and that the fire is only a concern in the interior of British Columbia. I want to bring us out to the west coast here and to talk about the capital regional district here in coastal BC, coastal BC and around Victoria. Of course, you know that Vancouver Island and the Olympic Peninsula gives us a very strong rain shadow effect so that on the west side of Vancouver Island, it's very rainy and on the east side, we live in a rain shadow that if we take a look here, results, if you look in, in the Victoria area, it's one of the driest areas in the southern part of British Columbia, um, certainly on the coast. The image here is from Cowichan Bay area, and this is typical of what we see. As I flew over in Harbor Air this morning and looked out at the beautiful green of the Gulf Islands and Vancouver Island, it's a forested area with our communities embedded in those forests. But if we were able to come back, time travel back to the early eight or late 1800s, the settlers who arrived and first surveyed this land described not a closed canopy forest, but a plain, a grassland with oaks and pines. And it was only on the ridgetops that they saw the closed canopy forests. And here in this area, of course, the Gary Oak woodlands and ecosystems perhaps epitomize that the most. The map is showing you the extent of the Gary Oak or meadows, their estimated extent in the 18, about 1800, about 200 years ago, in the, um, in the Victoria and Saanich area. And we know from both oral histories and from scientific reconstructions that those ecosystems were sustained by fire and those fires were often ignited intentionally as part of the land care and cultivation of food crops by the indigenous people who inhabited this landscape. And so our human interaction with that landscape in part drove the fires and drove the, the structures of those ecosystems and created a habitat or an environment that was open forest that is so different from today. And with the changes over the last two centuries, we see those Gary Oak Meadows reducing in their size and being replaced by forested ecosystems and of course our urban environment. And so here we have a bird's eye view looking down into an area adjacent to Victoria. And we're here in our wildland urban interface now where we live embedded with neighborhoods and semi-urban and semi-rural environments embedded in a forested environment that is hot and dry and susceptible to fire 
in the summers, as we've seen since 2015 with fires burning in the Sunshine Coast, in Souk, on the top or north end of Vancouver Island and Zabalis last summer. And so my warning is that although we live in a coastal temperate rainforest, we too need to be concerned about the role of fire in the ecosystems in which our homes are embedded. And so I want to bring to you a message that says climate change is contributing to the major fires that we have witnessed in 2017 and the repeat performance in 2018 where we broke records burning 1.2 and then subsequently 1.3 million hectares of forests. But it isn't just climate change that's a driving feature here. In part, these fires are fueled by choices that we have made historically, the legacies of 70 years of forest and fire management, and the impacts, the implications, their cumulative effects. But that gives me hope in part because it tells me that the solutions also come from our ability to manage and choose to manage forests and fire in a different way. In part, we learned lessons after the 2003 firestorms that affected um, Kelowna and Barrier McClure, the Okanagan Mountain Park fire being probably most noteworthy. We learned and across our landscapes that we had 1.6 million hectares of hazardous fuels, that's dense vegetation built up around our communities in British Columbia. And we've made efforts in the 15 years since that fire to try to build community wildfire protection plans for the 350 plus municipalities and First Nations communities in the province. And we've had only limited success. Those plans were intended to identify the hazardous fuels, the forested areas around homes, to make plans to mitigate and put those plans into action. Between 2004 and 2016, we invested about almost $200 million in fuels mitigation with about $78 million directly going to trying to reduce the fuels around our communities. And what we've learned is that it's an incredibly expensive process to do so. And at $6,000 per hectare, we've achieved only 12,000 of the 1.6 million hectares that we need to treat. At the same time, we've spent another $3 billion in suppression, and in the last two years, another $1 billion trying to suppress fires. And so my message here is that we're in orders of magnitude different between the investment in proactive management and shifting our actions towards solutions ahead of fire versus our reactive management. And until we turn that on its head and enact the solutions that we know exist, we will be challenged by wildfire into the future. Now, I've said many times that we need somewhere between three and four billion dollars to truly address the problem of hazardous fuels in the interior of BC. And I've often been met with the refrain that that's just too expensive. But I want to remind you that in coastal British Columbia, we've spent 19 billion dollars since 2004 in proactive management to mitigate against earthquake. And so when there's will, there's a way. So let me summarize for you the era of megafires that we now live in and then show you the transitions that I believe are possible that we can enact in British Columbia to learn to coexist with fire. 
So I've painted for you a picture here that says that we have long legacies of the way that we have managed for timber and focused at stands and resulted in landscapes that were vulnerable to fire. As we've tried to transition into a mode where we are mitigating fuels around communities, we've run into policy conflicts, which means that we need to learn from our mistakes and change some of our policy and practice. We've had citizens that are resistant to mitigation because they don't want trees cut or prescribed fires in their backyard. And we've had barriers to economic incentives that would allow us to move forward rapidly on these programs. So bioenergy is one way that we could link fuels mitigation with a new economy and innovation in British Columbia. As a result, our, our communities remain vulnerable and our citizens, I think, are naive. I think we have been so lulled with the success of dialing 911 or star 5555 in the case of a wildfire and having the firefighters come and put out those fires so successfully over our lifetime that we haven't realized that we live in fire-prone environments and that there are things that we could be doing ourselves as homeowners and community members to contribute to the solutions. And as long as we're not asking our politicians to do more for us, we lack the political will to move forward. So let me show how we go from this era of megafires to an era in which we coexist with fire. And I'm gonna start with every one of you who is here in the room tonight, because what we need to do is engage and educate our citizens, including yourselves, who live in fire-prone environments, so we understand where we live, so that we learn about fire-smart principles and apply it to our homes to create defensible space around our individual homes, so that we support the community protection actions that are taken by our municipal governments so that we can be in support of those wildland urban interface treatments, even if it means cutting trees and prescribing fires in the parks surrounding our communities. That we can scale up and use proactive landscape management and link our management of these fuels with a bioenergy economy that's forward-looking in an era of climate change. As we scale up in the Faculty of Forestry, we look for solutions and ways in which we can shift our focus towards managing for resilience. And that's going to take strong science linked with indigenous knowledge that is strong in this province and combining them into an evidence-based and adaptive framework so that we can continue to learn from our mistakes and move forward as climate change brings us more uncertainty and surprises. And finally, I'm going to call for a diversification of our fire management. There will be times when we see fires ignited in the landscape that put our homes and lives and infrastructure at risk, and those fires will have to be suppressed. But don't be surprised when there are other fires that ignite in remote parts of our landscapes, and we choose to manage them by allowing them to burn to let fire back onto the landscape and to do its ecological work, to create the diversity, to create and break up the homogeneity of those landscapes and create the heterogeneity that we need so that our landscapes are more resilient to future fire. And don't be surprised when people offer to have a prescribed burn in a neighborhood near you 
or in a community in the interior that you like to visit and to vacation because prescribed fire, managed fire, and wildfire are all an essential part of our ecosystem and part of our solution as we learn to coexist in an era of climate change. And so 2017 and 2018 combined with 2013, they cannot be just another wake up call. Our forests and communities are not yet resilient to climate change and the types of wildfires that have emerged in recent years and transformative change is urgently needed. And so here's our next steps as we learn to coexist with fire. Thank you. Well, Lori, that was absolutely fantastic. I learned a lot. And um, I couldn't help, as someone who studies human disease, that um, it's sort of similar to the situation where you have a, a society that spends a lot at the downstream uh, when individuals have already developed uh, untreatable diseases that might be managed earlier on at a lower expense if there's preventative medicine. So you're talking about addressing the heterogeneity of the landscape, uh, of controlled fires, those sorts of things. Um, the expense, $4 billion, it seems like a lot of money, but if you think about the consequence of not doing that um, and, 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 and the intensity uh, and, and, and difficulty in managing the fires in recent years, um, that contrast is, is, is what really matters. So I, I have not heard a clearer uh, explanation of um, the importance of fires, controlled fires, and the heterogeneity of, of the, the forest landscape. So thank you for that. Uh, but I want to ask you, as the first question, please, all of you, please ask your questions on Slido if you have. So I think we also have a microphone for those who don't have cell phones, so we can also, you can also hopefully ask uh, questions in the old-fashioned way. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. Um, let me ask you this. Um, you did say that part of the problem, because we have, we, we, you, you so clearly articulated what some of the solutions might be. Um, and, uh, but you said one of the barriers is uh, that the populace is naive as to what the solutions might be. Um, and you asked everyone to, to send the message out. And I hope that all 100 and something individuals will do so. But to get real policy change at a federal level or a provincial level, um, is it not fair to say a lot of the onus is on us? as an expert, as an institution that has the resources to disseminate knowledge, which is one of our priorities and aspirations, is it not on us as opposed to on them? Not that they uh, cannot play an important role, yeah. but you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so I think where, where individuals have a role that they can play is um, to become aware of the environment and the potential for fire in and around your homes and then to look up things like Fire Smart Canada and to see what you could do to create a protected zone around your individual home. You're right, when it comes to those of us who have the scientific knowledge and have worked with the communities and with the agencies like BC Wildfire Service and with 
with the forest managers, with the provincial government. The onus, I think, is on us to work collaboratively and cooperatively to look for solutions to these problems that have that bigger picture flavor and can begin to inform policy and practice. And in fact, um, in some ways, I feel as though my life stopped being my own on July 7th, 2017, when 160 lightning strikes started fires in and around Williams Lake, where my graduate students and research assistants were working that day. Because for that, that moment and that day, at the beginning of the, the summer of 2017, followed by 70 days of a state of emergency, um, that was a, a career changer for me. All of the science that I had worked on for 15 years suddenly came to focus and the messages that we had been conveying became incredibly important for me to step beyond my role as a scientist and to move into that realm of public education and then working with those policymakers. And so I've spent a lot of time in small communities around British Columbia working with the local agencies with the stakeholders, with indigenous communities and leaders and municipal governments, um, trying to find solutions and set, I guess, precedents, create the case studies or the pilot studies that can be used to guide other communities around the province. And so we're working in the north, we're working in the central, we're working in the south part of the province in places where the forests are different, the communities are different, and the solutions will have to be different as well. I want to reframe my question. You're doing enormous amounts, and we're incredibly proud, about understanding what the levers are mm -hmm. to try to address the uh, situation in a proactive manner. I think it's probably more fair to, to ask what are we, the rest of us at the university, mm -hmm. doing? Because we want you to be making the scientific discoveries that are part of the evidence-based recommendations for policy change. And so I would turn the mirror back on me and say, what are you doing, me, to disseminate, help you disseminate the knowledge to, with our government relations, uh, with, with all of our media contacts. And so I, for one, am inspired and motivated. And I hope that when we return, that we can really come up with a plan on how to get this story out so that uh, policymakers understand how important this is and uh, address some of the um, suppositions or, or, or uh, misperceptions that are getting in the way of implementing a plan, which I think is pretty clear from, from your presentation. Thank you. In terms of homogeneity, you talk about the fact that a homogeneous landscape of trees is more vulnerable to, to single uh, uh, insults or to, to insects or, or things like that. So to what extent, in addition to um, uh, controlled fires that you've talked about, is, is no, uh, harnessing the knowledge of diversity and, and, and strategic planting, and, 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 and of course it'll take time for the trees to grow, but is, is that part of the plan? Absolutely. So there's a really important role that our forest management can play here. And um, as I mentioned in the presentation, one of the things we have done over many years, we've aimed to be sustainable in the way that we managed our forests at fine scales. And in British Columbia, we have a world-class system that has been developed for looking at a small patch and assessing it and making long-term decisions that are well-guided by ecology and science. What we lost sight of in managing each little patch was their cumulative big picture 
cumulative effects at the landscape level. And we recognize that now. And so a shift towards landscape level management is actually what is the refrain in the interior of British Columbia. And it's coming not just from conservationists and forest managers um, and from, from government agencies, but it's also coming from the licensees, from the, the, or from the actual um, companies, representatives who are actively managing on our landscapes. And so it's really a cumulative effort I see happening and a real paradigm shift that's happening towards moving to that landscape level and making choices and plans. In amongst that, it means that looking at those landscapes that have burned, for example, people are looking at them differently now and saying, as we regrow the forest, what are the mix of trees that we will allow to grow back? We've focused in the past on needle leaf trees because they're the trees that we tried to cultivate for timber products as part of our forest industry. But we're recognizing now that diversifying those species and including and managing for species like aspen and birch, which respond to fire differently, and including those broadleaf trees in the mix of regenerating forests is a really important feature of what we need to do in our next steps. And thinking about places on the landscape where we will manage to maintain areas with fewer trees so that we always have fuel breaks in the landscapes that as fire moves across them, they can become fire breaks or places where we can put more wildland firefighters, change the behavior of a spreading fire and be able to hold it before it advances on a community. And so that kind of proactive big picture landscape planning, it's in its infancy and we're figuring out how to do it as we go, but that's part of adaptive management and it's hitting the ground. Now the other thing that you said that's coming up in some of the questions um, that I think was very profound is your statement that we can learn from uh, First Nations. Uh, and obviously they have millennia of living in this region. Um, and you've talked about the fact that they've, they've shown um, that they understand the value of proactive uh, fires, controlled fires. Um, so here's the question. Um, I would assume, or maybe I'm wrong because I'm not an expert in this area, but that that in addition to their knowledge, there might be other examples around the world where uh, we might have learned from um, the mistakes of the past and, 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 and perhaps there were efforts in addition to First Nations that we might learn from, from different parts of the world. Um, are there things that you think we can learn about, that we can apply now instead of um, reinventing the wheel and how to manage Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Um, there are, there are multiple ways that we can look internationally and gain insights as to how we might manage for um, fires differently into the future. I think there are excellent examples that come from Australia that have to do with both prescribed burning, forest management, um, and, and fire management, but also very strong programs of um, burning by Aborigines, so getting traditional fire back onto the landscape using the knowledge of their fire keepers. There's some um, outstanding examples that come in particular from the Northern Territory that are being showcased around the world. At recent meetings that I attended um, in Montana, we had an opportunity to travel through tribal lands where the First Nations south of the border, the American Native Americans, um, are using prescribed fire on their traditional lands. And I'm pleased to say we're making progress on this as well in British Columbia. In fact, this afternoon I was speaking with one of the leaders from the First Nations Emergency Services Society 
who has spearheaded a program here in BC. Um, and in fact, just weeks ago, the first Indigenous-run cultural burns were re-implemented on the landscape as prescribed burns in the month of April here. And so we're learning those lessons and we're also showing leadership internationally on how to get that cultural burning and that cultural knowledge back on the landscape. All right, I'm gonna take the top question, but we do have a microphone somewhere, roving mic. So if you would like to ask a question through a mic, you don't have a cell phone, raise your hand so we can get the mic to you. Oh, back there, we'll go to this and we'll go next to one of those in the audience. The top question that you're getting virtually is, what is the highest risk location in the CRD? Oh, that's a power question, isn't it? <laughs> so my understanding, and I'm not an expert in the CRD, we have done a little bit of a case study in this area, and I have spoken to managers. My understanding is that one of the places where there's been quite a bit of proactive work done um, and concern is actually around the drinking water supply for the CRD. And so that's a place where there has been a community wildfire. There is a community wildfire protection plan for the region. Um, and one of its top priorities is education, is for people to understand the sources of ignition. In this region, 80% of fires are actually human ignitions. Only 20% are coming from natural ignitions. We live in a, in a lightning shadow here on the, you know, on the rain shadow side of these mountains and here on the coast. And so a key component is to inform people about not making the mistakes that lead to fire. The second is around active management of some of the vegetation in around that critical infrastructure that supplies the drinking water to the citizens of the, of the city of Victoria and the region. And then the third is this component about fire smart and to engage community members around, um, around the region to become aware of the risks of fire, the vegetation around them, and to think about those fire smart principles at the home and neighborhood level. Back there we have a mic uh, question. Go thank ahead. you very much. I'm the MLA for Caribou North and I just want to really applaud and thank you for the work that you're doing. As the epicenter of the fires for both 2017 and 2018 and the continuing effects of what we are facing, we appeal to all of you in this room that we need your support on the types of investments that our communities need and the research that UBC is doing and specifically the faculty. So thank you very much. Um, for that fire smarting is critically important and we need those investments to make sure that we are prepared. Uh, the, there is a significant meeting in my community tonight of Quinell because one of the challenges we have on wildfires now as a result of, for example, the Plateau Fire is that we have collapsing roads. We do not have the ability with culverts and infrastructure in our communities to now face the consequences of not just the impacts of the wildfires, but the impacts in communities of what this looks like. It is a little concerning the plateau fire started as 19 individual fires. A decision was made around how we manage individual fires in remote um, settings it turned into a mega fire and now we have to address the challenges of uh, th those decisions. Um, investment is critically important. It can't just be at those decisions made um, at the, it, we need infrastructure investment all the way along. Do you have some thoughts on that? 
Yeah, it's, so the Plateau Fire, for those who don't know, as, as you've mentioned, it's 19 fires that merged together. It's the biggest fire to have ever burned in British Columbia, 521,000 hectares for a single fire. And so um, its impacts in that region, in and around Quesnel, um, both ecologically and socially, clearly, um, are going to be resounding for many, many years to come. Let me just uh, thank um, the MLA for being for here, here. Um, and your leadership. And um, you know, we feel it's part of our responsibility as a research university, doing research on, on issues of, of concern to British Columbians uh, to collaborate with you. So um, I'm pretty easy to reach. My email is santa.ono <laughs> at ubc.ca. So if you'd like to offline strategize as to how to get this important work and recommendations out because uh, jobs and the economy are, are at stake. And so thank you for your leadership and being here. And we, we know that you're really busy and being here at our alumni event uh, means a lot to us. There's another question in the audience. Uh, thank you very much for a wonderful presentation. It was clear and concise. Uh, I have one, one question that I'll, I'll get afterwards. Uh, we're seeing right now in this country all kinds of uh, phenomenal flooding and, and repeated flooding. And it seems to me that somehow we have to wake up and sort of say, you know, you really can't live here. This is a crazy place. Do you have any thoughts about places in this province where we are building and, uh, you know, and we, we are putting people at risk because, in fact, we simply shouldn't be trying to live there. We should, it's too risky. Are, are there... I, am I off base on this, or are there in fact places where right now there's development happening and it shouldn't be? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's one we struggle with. Um, I think my greatest concern when I think about these problems from a wildfire perspective is based in our hottest and driest environments. So the Okanagan, which also happens to be our fastest growing part of, pro of the province. So if you look around the city of Kelowna, over the period from one census to another, the population increased by 18% in the last census. That community is growing, and it's growing somewhat unchecked. So I don't want to tell people they can't live in the Okanagan because I don't think they're going to listen to me. <laughs> However, I think there are things that we could be doing that would be very wise and fire smart. And one would be some city planning. We need to make decisions about where in the landscape is it unsafe to have homes because, in fact, we can't access them to evacuate those homes in the case of a fire. Are there places in the landscape or in our neighborhoods as we build into these forests? We have to be making choices about fire smarting the forests around those neighborhoods as we build into them. We need to be thinking about egress about creating roads, not that are dead end, but have multiple ways to get in and out of neighborhoods. Because one of the things we learned in California in the past 12 months is that that emergency response and the ability to evacuate a community are critical. And then I'll come back down for one more piece of advice at the homeowner level again. All of us should be looking at those fire smart principles. Homes should not be built in the interior of British Columbia unless they are being built with fire resistant materials, unless we have chosen roofing materials that will resist fire, and unless we're choosing materials 
that are resistant to ember storms because it's the embers carried on the wind of a fire that land on a home or come in through a vent and ignite our homes on fire. And we know that now, and we can be applying very simple building principles across our province that would protect all of us, not only at the time of initial building, but as we do renovations and move forward in repairs on our homes. Let me say that is really such a profound uh, question. And it's another example. We have a major campus that's growing in the Okanagan. Yes. And so we should be amplifying through that campus your work and the recommendations. We have significant voice there. And so that's the other thing we got to talk about is how can we mobilize the resources there because we're in constant communication with city planners yes. in the Okanagan. Um, the other thing that we have, which is very powerful, is a very passionate student body on both campuses that feel that we as uh, their elders um, are not uh, uh, taking seriously the evidence that people like you are producing in, in, in making those proactive decisions and pushing for steps that could really um, address these issues. So we have them as well, and they will vote pretty soon, as, as I'm sure people know. So, so thank you for that outstanding question. I guess the harder question is, uh, if you know that information, it's one thing not to build there, yes. but if the homes are already there and the climate change has put you at risk in what was normal, otherwise previously a safe area, and then having them have to move away because of floods or fires, is much harder and then that becomes an issue of how do you uh, make it possible for that person to move um, and how do you advocate for them in terms of insurance, things like that. And in fact there are in some places there are incentives, you know we've heard about with the floods in eastern Canada where there are some neighborhoods and communities where people are offered money to actually Absolutely. move from those homes. We can look south of the border for some precedent as well. You know, I lived in Colorado when I went to graduate school for a little while and, and people described the forests in which I lived. I lived in a rural neighborhood as the asbestos forest. And by the time, you know, 20, 2000 to 2010 rolled around, fires, major fires had burned through with tremendous impacts on homes. And so there, it's actually the insurance agents the insurance industry that's regulating now because people cannot get insurance to live in some of those fire-prone environments or to build back their homes. And so that is, is something that I'd like us to avoid. We know how to build. In the areas that have been affected by, in British Columbia, we can build back better. We know the principles. We now need to put them into action. Wonderful. Uh, there are so many questions. Um, and um, well, we want to have one more question, this gentleman up here. Please go ahead. Yes. What would it take to coordinate the results of your research to impact the, or to translate into action at the provincial level? In other words, how do you impact university research with actions and positive steps at the societal level? Well, there's a challenge, isn't it? Because all of us would like to think that our research, that we are spending so much effort um, and time and energy and invest so much in, that it does give back to the communities in which we live. I'm really proud to say that much of the work that my students do in my lab um, has been focused on community-based solutions. And some of it is actually being implemented 
and, and has had some impacts in improvements, for example, in the programs and the way that we're distributing funds to communities to try to take those actions and to mitigate fuels within them. Um, we've had a chance to interact with at the federal level and contribute to the blueprint for wildfire science. Um, and, and taking those next steps and really taking us from the classroom, from the research, from the forest, and, and interacting with the policy and decision makers. Um, that's kind of the next steps that I see in my career and the direction I go and I'm welcome, I welcome any comments, suggestions, and advice from, from those of you in the audience who might wish to share as well. Let me just wrap up to say that uh, this has been very, very valuable, not hopefully not only interesting for you, but very valuable to me as, as the leader of UBC to know that we need to help you and we need to help create links between yourself and others at UBC with the policymakers. The other thing I want to say, your question is really insightful, is, is how do we take all of the new information that's coming out of a large research university such as UBC and make sure that it is efficiently translated and that we get we, we, we make meaningful, efficient change. Um, that really is one of the newer missions of UBC in our new strategic plan. We have committed to knowledge mobilization, uh, not just knowledge creation, but knowledge mobilization. And so you will see UBC much more out there connecting locally and globally. Um, this is one amazing example of why um, research at, at research universities is so fundamentally important, but it's one of many. Um, there are similar stories with our work in the Faculty of Education and the School of, of Population and Public Health on youth mental health. UBC is pioneering mental health literacy programs. We need to mobilize that and I can tell you that uh, politicians, gov government officials are working with us in, in spreading that on, not only across BC but across Canada. So um, the government has been really, really reactive, and I'd say over the past couple of decades, I've seen um, much more enthusiasm and proactive reaching out to us uh, from government. So I, I'm optimistic about that nexus between universities and, and, and the governments that fund us. But whether it's mental health or forest fires or whether it has to do with the salmon industry, there's so much relevant work that's happening at UBC that we need to do a better job mobilizing for the benefit of British Columbians because that is why we were founded as a university over 100 years ago. Thank you very much.